everyone, my name is Maslin and I'm sitting in for Aisa who is Miss Busy 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 B. It's season 3 of Seek to Speak podcast, a season of experimentation where we try out whatever crazy idea we have in mind and you tell us whether it's good or not. But in any case, what it means is that we're just trying out different formats and uh, see what resonates most with the listeners. In today's episode, in commemoration of Global Literacy Day, and our theme this month, The Power Words, we are going to try out a not-too-crazy idea. I've got three writers with me today, and each of us has brought a selected piece to hash out with all of you. They are going to give a quick synopsis of their piece and then share the why, how, who, and what's with us. Seek to speak. Alada, DB, and Cass, welcome. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for volunteering. I wanted to do like a round of introduction of what you guys do. So, Alana, why don't you start? Hi, uh, my name is Alana. Uh, I've been a writer professionally for about 10 years now. Currently, I'm working in a B2B marketing agency, uh, writing white papers and B2B marketing content. For me, writing in particular, with my favorite format, I suppose, being poetry, I guess what I love about it is the joy or catharsis even that people experience when they get to put their thoughts and their insights on paper and just see the page flow with your words and have the ability to potentially impact other people. <laughs> Thank you, Alana. Dimi, you want to go next? All right, sure. Hi, I am Dimitri. Dimi for short. I am a copywriter in the advertising industry. I have been writing for about six to seven years now. What I love about writing? Well, I like the words, I like the meaning, <laughs> and the whole, basically, when it comes down to it, the whole, the crafting process is something that just makes sense. Whether it's purposeful or, you know, just, you're just training your hand on a scratch pad, you know, it just keeps you going. And I feel it's, there's something very basic to it, yet important about it. Yeah, I do believe that this day and age writers are the last remaining fighter for truth. All right, Cass, you want to go next? My name is Cass. I have been a professional writer, uh, I think for the past seven or eight years, but in terms of uh, as a creative writer, it's just a pastime. I've been writing since I was about 10 or 11 years old. So writing has always been pretty significant to me in my life. And I believe, like Demi has said as well, and like Alana has said, this is something about seeing your words be put on paper and come to life. And I think the biggest thing for me with writing, I think specifically for fictional writing, is seeing how your words connect people, even from, I think, around the world at this point. Quarantine is so bad, and people are feeling so alienated that words really do create such a big resonating effect on people because it makes them feel like they're not alone and it can be for anything i don't just write like political stuff i don't write non-fictional stuff i just write fiction and even then it's sort of immersing yourself in that fantasy i guess in that utopia away from the chaos (laughs) that we have going on around us and i think that's what we should try to maintain with writing nowadays and storytelling so before we start on each of our pieces i just want to mention a bit about global literacy day it's celebrated each year on the 8th of september to remind everyone about the importance of literacy not just in in a matter of education but also a matter of dignity and human rights do you guys have any thoughts on this and do you think global literacy day is still relevant today and has it have any impact on it before yeah i think it's, it's still relevant in this day and age because i mean unfortunately it's it's sad but it's a fact that you know it might not be skill that just everyone has you know and in a world of where you have to derive meaning out of things, uh, especially in conditions that it can mean the difference between life or death, you know, literacy literally becomes <laughs> a tool of survival. You know, so uh, yeah, it's it's still important, especially to raise awareness about any blind spots possibly that exist today. Especially. That's that's so true, and and you know you don't realize it. 
until you go to a foreign country and you don't understand anything, you're like, oh my god, how important is communication and literally, literally know where to go, what to do, how to order food. Yeah, exactly what Dimi was saying, uh, which is that it's so critical to our survival in this modern age to be able to read, write, and communicate by those means. And from what I know is that knowledge or, or, or the pursuit of knowledge lies in being literate. Cassie, what are your thoughts on this? I 100% agree. Um, I think we have historically seen so many people fight for that right to just be able to get an education, to be able to go to school without persecution, uh, whether it's race, religion, and uh, gender for that matter. And I don't think it's fair or right for us to forget that struggle. We should be continuously pushing for literacy and the right to be able to study and learn no matter what. Okay, so on to our reviews. I'm going to start first because I'm like the least pro here. Why you say that? No. <laughs> I think don't say pro, okay? Pro. I read it and I'm like, mm-hmm. 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 I mean, the writer is pro. Mm-hmm. The writer is a pro. <laughs> well, we like the story. I like the story too. We've had this discussion before. Mm-hmm. This is a great story to dissect. Quite, quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, okay. So, the piece I chose today is uh, Lamb to a Slaughter by Roald Dahl, which is one of my favorite writers. And one of the reasons I chose it is because when I was younger, I wasn't a big fan of short stories. But when I read Lamb to a Slaughter, I loved it. So the star of the story is uh, Mary Maloney. She's a pregnant housewife and she's pottering about the house and she's waiting for the husband to come, as he does every day. Her husband, by the way, is a senior police officer Um, when he does come back he was cold and aloof and she couldn't understand why and she kept you know offering him drinks on do you want something to eat you know being being that perfect little housewife and then suddenly he's like sit down i'm gonna tell you something and he told her what he told her was never revealed but she the her reaction is that she couldn't believe it and then she just kind of went about her business asking him what he wants for dinner and how was his day and he's like look you're you don't don't make me don't make me dinner I'm, I'm gonna leave and then she got so upset suddenly that she killed him so basically there's like a, a leg of frozen lamb that <laughs> she went up behind him and killed him and then he died <laughs> surprise after yes, she yes, killed yes. him he died okay <laughs> see how I'm pro <laughs> And then, but what happens next was amazing. She kind of like, hmm, I just killed my husband. What should I do? I'm just going to pretend that I didn't kill my husband and go about and make him, make him dinner. So she went to like, uh, I think the village, bought some food to get alibi and then came home. And then Patrick, that's his husband's name. Patrick, where are you? I'm home. Oh my God, you're dead. And then she cried. <laughs> okay, what do I do now? My husband's dead. <laughs> Somebody killed him. Better call the police. She called the police. The police came, all his colleagues, right? And then they're like, don't worry, Mary, just sit down. Just, just sit down. We'll find out who did this. Oh, I can't I can't sit still. I'm going to cook you that lamb. And then they're like discussing, I wonder how, who killed him and why this happened to him. And in the end, though, they all ate the... The murder weapon? The murder weapon! That's right! <laughs> <laughs> they all ate the murder weapon. And then one officer said, and, and this is like the, the best quote, I think. Um, you know what? It's probably right under our noses. <laughs> the end. <laughs> so, I super, I super duper love this short story. I'm, I'm not sure whether any of you have read it or managed to pick it up before this recording. Um, there is a lot of Indeed. talking points. And what I love most about it is that it's uh, multifaceted. It started out very, very heavy about, you know, I don't know about marriage. And then it became a murder and then it became like a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> a dark one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but all in like five pages. How do you do yeah, that? Amazing. Yeah. Uh, roll dial for you. Okay. So my f- question is, 
the title, Lamb to a Slaughter. Do you think when he thought of the title, he meant it literally or figuratively? I think both. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. Yeah. <laughs> ah, it hits two birds with one stone. Yeah. What do you think it meant? Cass? I think the same. I think when it comes to wordplay like that, um, you sort of have to, to, to acknowledge the fact that there's always just that double entendre there. Maybe it is both yeah. literally and both figuratively. And and for a while, the first time I read it, I genuinely thought she had cooked her husband. But then I was sort of disappointed to realize that maybe she hadn't because she had. It was it was lamb. Yeah. But I really did like the fact that it was so. It was the perfect murder because mm-hmm. because she did everything she she had to do. She created her alibi. She went down to the store. She timed herself. All that stuff. It was so great, and it just kind of. It's just one of those really nice stories that stick with you. Yeah, case studies <laughs> of like how to commit the perfect murder and how to write the perfect story. Like there's a beginning, yeah. ending, climax, you know. <laughs> you know, a little thought experiment. Yeah. <laughs> when you think of it though, I mean, Roald Dahl and, and us being writers ourselves, I mean, when, when you think of it, you know, like, come on, him being a writer, he must have had that moment where he's like, uh-huh, you know, so he must have definitely meant it in both ways. You know? <laughs> Probably had like a draft of different titles, oh my and God, then definitely. like, <laughs> and that one just clicked when it clicked in you know, the figuratively and uh, literally. I always find titles to be the most difficult part. Titles and summaries of writing yeah. is such a difficult yeah. thing. And nowadays, yeah. you know, we have the luxury of just pulling up like a, a lyric to a song that we think mm-hmm. fits the, the story. Mm-hmm. We just use that. Back then, it was like, yeah, whatever. Call it yeah. the heart. Call it yes. a lamb to a slaughter, you know? Yeah. yeah. And call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think when he wrote it, it could possibly be what might happen if I tell my wife this thing? And then it became a story. <laughs> exactly. Brilliant. Um, anybody wants to explain to listeners um, how Lamb to a Slaughter is, works as a title here? Looking at it from the figurative sense. Well, for readers who are not familiar with the short story itself, would probably think that, oh, okay. Uh, just as the saying goes, like a lamb to the slaughter, right? Like you're entering a situation not knowing that you are actually in danger. And in this sense, it's like the husband. He didn't know what was coming until it finally literally knocked him on the head. (laughs) It's like an elementary way of explaining it, but I hope that is effective. But my concern when I was reading the what I got out of it is like, damn, these policemen are pretty ineffective like what are they doing the murder weapon is clearly on the table <laughs> it's under their noses yeah and i guess they probably um, thought so highly of their former colleague you know and they just mm-hmm. didn't want to think negatively yeah. of the wife so yeah. it just like eluded them so anyway they probably it could be argued that they were the lambs yeah. being led to the slaughter too definitely true once it becomes uncovered that you know they were inept and they have some answering to do back at the precinct. <laughs> I can imagine a few heads would roll. Yeah. Okay, which brings me to my next question. Why do you think the police didn't suspect Mary? Oh, I have a, an answer for this. Uh, I suppose looking at the time or the period when it was written, right, women were very largely still seen as the meeker um, subservient, docile sex, incapable even of committing crimes so grievous like murder. How times have changed. I don't know. <laughs> have they? <laughs> <laughs> Not by much, I can promise you that. Because you got you get any input? Um, I do in that sense. I do agree that Roldal's timing of this, because she was the perfect housewife, right? Uh, I also want to give credit to her a little bit because of the fact that she did, I think, almost everything right in that gone girl kind of way where she distracted them when they were trying to go further into investigating the house. You know, she knew she didn't really have all of her stuff sorted. So she played up that I'm a weak 
traumatized wife. I couldn't remember if she was pregnant or not. I can't remember this. I might be rem remembering a different story. She was. She was pregnant. She was. So I think she played into that whole thing like, oh my God, I'm so upset. Oh, I don't know what to do. I'm so, so I'm in pain. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you put yourself in this situation with a guy, with a man, like a manly man, like a cop, obviously they don't know what to do. And so they're all just focused on, holy shit, is she going to go into labor? Is she going to lose the baby? And I think that sort of thing was something that she played to her benefit. Of, of making sure that they didn't investigate as uh, closely as they might have uh, in any situation other than this one. Jimmy, you got a take on why the police didn't suspect Mary? I guess I could relate to, especially to to the, the, the policemen, you know, being kind of uncertain what to do in that situation. Yeah, with the pregnant <laughs> woman <laughs> investigating the death of her husband, and plus the, the husband was the, uh, their colleague, right? The, the detective yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I believe it was their boss. The boss, ah, there you go. You know, so it's like this fraught situation. You don't want to, I mean, you don't want to tread too heavily in certain places. So uh, in that way, I guess the whole situation kind of worked to her advantage. And <laughs> I could definitely get that gun girl vibe out of the whole situation yeah, where, you know, great. she must have been thinking on her feet, kind of not knowing what to do, but at the same time, certain of what to do next. Yeah. This actually ties into why I love the title because I think at the beginning of the short story, I think you might think that Mary is the lamb that's going to the slaughterhouse. And then, but actually in the end, there's a switch of power. Who's the lamb and who's the slaughterer? Who's the knife? Who's the knife? Who's the knife? Two-part Florence okay. machine. Yeah. So, that, you know, there's a power shift and then that's so exciting and then she got away with it. That's yeah, great. 100%. One final question is, what do you think Patrick told his wife that she got so upset? He's leaving her. That's what you think? What do you think that? Is that the only reason why women kill men? Uh, again, going back to the time when it was written, <laughs> the 1950s, right? So in Western media, what is normally portrayed uh, of men uh, during those times, right? They're probably in advertising, smoke in their office, cheat on their wives. <laughs> Sorry, is this sensitive? <laughs> I mean, I mean, Jimmy, are you okay? <laughs> Do you need like a mental health check? <laughs> Cheat on their wives. <laughs> what? <laughs> but you know, such were the times that Roald Dahl and the people in his around his life were living. I suppose. Jimmy, why don't you go next? Give a man perspective. Oh, it's the classic, you know, lost in translation moment, right? Where you don't know what Bill Murray said to uh, Scarlett Johansson. Uh, but I think I mean like my lizard brain tells me that it must have been you know something to the effect of yeah I'm leaving you or I'm divorcing you because it was kind of indicated you know that uh, how he denoted somehow that you know it's the condition wasn't ideal for him in uh, ascending the ladder uh, professionally Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I think it would have been something along those lines. Divorce or, you know, I'm leaving you. What about you, Cass? I do agree. I think one big weird thing, I don't know uh, that if Roald Dahl had this in mind, but when women murder, nine times out of ten, like it, it, the, the odds of them doing something in, in crimes of passion, acts of passion versus like a very planned, very distant murder, which is poisoning. A lot of women usually use poison as their um, murder weapon of choice because it's so separated from them. It's not physical. It's not violent. It's kind of just like I give you this thing and you do go. To have Mary as someone who is several months pregnant, taking like a blind swing at her husband with a frozen leg of lamb uh, does show an, a very big indication of like of an emotional like breakdown in that sense. So for me, I definitely think it has something to do with uh, I am going to leave you, uh, like what the other two have said. It's either that or I don't know if this will be a, a, an intense enough of an issue to cause her cold-blooded murder is that he maybe was planning, maybe he was hope thinking about getting fired or he was planning on quitting 
and she was worried that I don't think so. I think my, my gut instinct is just telling me it's the, I've been cheating on you, I want you out of the house, I don't want this baby, that kind of stuff. I think, yeah, I think any combination of that would work, but also I think Mary has lived up to this idea of being the perfect wife and mom. So she's like, his, her life is perfect and he's going to, I guess, destroy her vision of what a perfect life is. And combined with him being such a jerk about it, kind of pushed her over the edge. He could have been kinder. He could have been gentler on how he handled things. But is there is there a good way to tell your wife you're leaving her? If at all, that's what he said. Crazy idea would be, honey, I fell in love with a guy. <laughs> would that drive someone to murder? You would be surprised uh, yeah. several times it has. But I mean, in this sense of like Patrick, <laughs> just we'll tie back to the story real quick. Um, that's a very delicate thing to talk about at this point. Um, I think with Patrick, I can give him credit to the fact where he does actually say that even if our marriage falls apart, he did say something about, I'm still going to take care of you. So no matter what he told her, he was still kind of willing to step up and take ownership of the fact that he they did have a child on the way and that he was planning on, on doing something to support them. But I think, like you said, it is it is very true that it seems like it just completely broke Mary's um, Stepford Wives kind of ideal. And it just really was that, that, that last push off the edge. So I think it's like a build-up over many years of probably like just taking in whatever whatever he gave her and then just we're yeah. just gunning yeah. for this one goal and then he took it away from me. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, round one done. All right. Alana's next. Tell us what's your piece for this episode. So the piece that I've chose um, is a novel. Uh, and it's called The Power, uh, based on what I found uh, on the wiki page. It is a speculative science fiction novel by Naomi Alderman, uh, a British writer. Um, and it is also set to become an Amazon Prime television show, which I personally cannot wait for. But due to COVID, they had to uh, replan their very large, potentially large production for that show. But I really hope that it's coming soon so anyway the author is also an advocate for feminism and women's rights uh, which has greatly influenced her work the power itself is a book within a book so a manuscript of manuscript of an imagined history of the tumultuous era during which women across the world developed and shared a power to emit electricity from their hands uh, the manuscript is submitted by a male author to a female author approximately 5,000 years after the power emerges and uh, revolution reassembles the world into a matriarchy. So essentially, uh, the world that this author has created has uh, flips on itself uh, from a patriarchy into a matriarchy. And girls, um, especially young girls, suddenly, um, whether it be a virus or... There were speculations in the book, basically, about how girls started getting this and why majority girls, maybe some boys have it, but mostly women have this power and they develop these skeins in their collarbone. They're called skeins. Uh, that is basically the heart of their power. So what they can do is they can shoot and generate, ele generate and shoot electricity from their fingertips, making them automatically more powerful and physically stronger than men. So yeah, that is uh, the book. This book kind of changed my perspective about gender dynamics and uh, sexual power struggles like because it asks the question which I'm sure has crossed many women's minds at some point in their lives. What if women were the stronger sex? Would we remain the same? Would we be able to rule with kindness, compassion, that sort of thing? Uh, and as a writer uh, and a lover of science fiction and fantasy, like uh, I love the world that she created. It's so richly imagined and written from the perspective of many different people who represent things like the media, organized crime, um, politics, and religion. And 
it's a thrilling and engaging read. The author has a beautiful way of being poetic and blunt, um, audacious, dark and cheeky all at the same time. And most of all, it made my fingers itch to pick up a pen or start like clickety-clacking on my keyboard. So that's why it was chosen. At first, I thought this was going to be a book about a manifesto of sorts where the author writes about destroying the patriarchy. Uh, well, one can dream. But instead, um, <laughs> I was surprised at the kind of pragmatic approach the author took. Like, though it did make me wonder what it would be like in a world where women are the dominant sex, there's a, a kind of tacit argument the author is making about how balance itself is hard to achieve and there is bound to be conflict in society, especially when the playing field is not even, right? So, and there's this quote in an article uh, about this book in The Atlantic that says, the change Alderman imagines doesn't balance the scales of society. It elevates women above men to the point where toxic behaviors begin to repeat themselves only in reverse. So in a way, she's saying that the chances of a more equitable society are like zilch, which is not untrue because the battle of the sexes is exactly that. It's a battle. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And yeah, so yeah, it's going to be a lengthy one. So circling back to the <laughs> elements or uh, circling back to the elements or themes highlighted in the novel, politics, religion, crime, and media, these are represented by characters in their own narratives. And we get the perspective of a daughter of a mob boss who witnessed the murder of her mother, um, a young girl who escapes her rapist caretaker and becomes a religious leader, and even the perspective of a male journalist who documents women around the world using their power to fight or to, you know, escape the torture and domination of men. And we get to see how these characters develop, most of them, the females, the female ones at least. Uh, I'd like to believe had good intentions at the start, but then later we observe how the power turns women basically into men. More of them assert their dominance by raping and harming men. And then this escalates to men losing their basic rights, like driving alone or owning a passport. And it also made me ponder... Like, do women really have to gain superpowers and be able to tase men with their fingers to be able to have equal opportunity? It's, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting how the message proposed here is that it doesn't matter who or what kind of society we live in, yeah. the dominant group will always take advantage. Yeah. And people will do anything to keep power, yeah. uh, even if that means repressing and oppressing. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether I agree with that. I do like to have to entertain this idea <laughs> of an optimistic society that would allow for fairness, I guess an open society that just accepts um, within reason. Yes. <laughs> to accept. Of no, course. we're not accepting murderers and <laughs> no. robbers, okay? Accepting. And abusers of frozen <laughs> legs of lamb. No, we yeah. don't accept those. <laughs> no. <laughs> But maybe like in pursuit of intelligence as opposed to just power over people in order to control. Was it a depressing piece to read? Uh, I guess it left me feeling a little empty. But towards, uh, I mean, at the start and reaching towards the climax, I was very kind of empowered to be reading these scenes of these girls fighting against... Um, are like literal armies with just their bare hands like how cool is that because you know the world has so much room for more um powerful female stories i think but you know towards the end where it becomes this kind of apocalyptic scene so yeah um spoiler alert one one imagines that uh, these women would be able to create um, a loving and compassionate society that actually you know uh, uplifts uplifts each other but you know going back to how the animal kingdom works there's a food chain right so there always has to be um, someone at the top and someone at the bottom and everyone in the middle so yeah and 
one poignant thing I, I found, but which was also very like cheeky as hell for the author to be doing, is so the book starts with this male author uh, who writes the manuscript about this imagined world, which was actually kind of, to me, it felt like history because it was 5,000 years ago because they found these artifacts of our present day materials and stuff or even like way before that, like people were worshipping female gods and stuff. But yeah, at the beginning of the book, um, the author pens uh, an email to his superior who is a woman and he even speaks or he even carries a tone that is very I would say um, female he included a lot of sorries uh, he was very apologetic in his language use whereas his sub, his superior was like oh that's a clever boy you know talking like a big shot male boss guy <laughs> and yeah, towards the end of that, she finished reading his manuscript and she was like, this is this is awesome, but have you ever considered publishing under a, f- a female name? So I was like, whoa! <laughs> oh, how the tables have turned! Yeah. Take that. Yep. So I guess I'll... I would say, okay, yeah. does anybody else want to share their thoughts? I have one last yeah. question. Or anybody else have questions? If I could just chip in. Of course. Like, uh, I mean, going back to the the story's take on the implica- implications of power, I mean, it's kind of, I wouldn't want to say depressing, but more the sobering thought, because, I mean, of course, this story goes lengths and lengths ahead in you know, creating this whole world to make a point that we can kind of already see, you know, without all this power, without all this fanfare, ultimately... Wherever the power rests, that is where, you know, corruption can happen. I mean, basically, I guess I'm saying power corrupts in 70 more words. (laughs) (laughs) And like, there's no hope, guys, give up, okay? You get to the top, that's it. Yep. Uh, Doesn't matter who. (laughs) Okay? I mean, okay, so I, I, I suppose this is sort of the... I don't know. In my opinion, with stories like this, I think it's great. Like, you're right. There should be more female stories and and twists. But there is such an expectation that we put on our female writers and characters to be like, oh, why do women have to be the one to create the peaceful, kind, and loving world? There's still that very maternal kind of ideal. Like, when you give somebody power, you're still, when you give a woman power, you're still assuming that she's going to take that role as a maternal, genteel kind of figure. And I don't think that's fair. And I don't think, not that there's anything wrong. I'm sure she opens up a whole of, a lot of conversations with her piece. And I'm sure it's, it's a great read. But I just think in that sense where when we look at what we assume to be gender equality, and you can't see me, but I'm holding like air commas between it, Um, gender equality uh, this is what many anti-feminists think we want which isn't true I think feminism and gender equality is all about being able to choose all about being able to um, create that world where you have the equal opportunities to do whatever you want without powers without whatever it's just looking at a person and your skills and being able to judge that based on their merits and that concludes our uh, little soundbite about feminism and gender equality. <laughs> I think that um, when people say that they expect change when women take over, mm-hmm. I think it's because they just want change. They Because it's a different, you know, it's not men, it's women, so they expect change. Mm. And to that extent, it is unfair um, to, you know, why can't I rule the same way as men just because I'm a woman? Mm-hmm. But it's just people expect that difference. Um, maybe it'll be the same the other way around if women are in control and they expect a change when I think that that is true yeah. right even even yeah it's human nature work, where you know when you're under a man yeah. boss and a woman boss you, you know, somehow assume that when you have a male boss for the rest of time then suddenly you're like oh it's a woman okay maybe things will be different she's better she understands us mm-hmm. empathically and then jokes on you she's <laughs> not as great as you think she is like you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then vice versa right you've got like a female boss people are saying oh I can never listen to females they never make a decision male boss comes in oh yeah he'll make the decisions jokes on you he can't do shit either you know, 
there's just you can't win you know just it's always um, there again are you projecting i'm not projecting <laughs> but i'm telling you the reality of the situation in the uh, corporate world thank you corporate world okay. <laughs> you're welcome yes. all right Wrap up. Wrap, up. wrap up section by okay. Alana. All right. So books like these inspire me to expand my thinking and imagination. Um, sure, it's a work of fiction, but haven't works of fiction inspired greatness in others? So I urge you to read this because the power of the written word is limitless. And if you look closely and try to understand the meaning behind the literature, you'll uncover so many new things you didn't know about the world and also about yourself. And I leave you with an excerpt from the book. Uh, the shape of power is always the same. It is infinite. It is complex. It is forever branching. While it is alive like a tree, it is growing. While it contains itself, it is a multitude. Its directions are unpredictable. It obeys its own laws. No one can observe the acorn and extrapolate each vein in each leaf of the oak crown. The closer you look, the more various it becomes. However complex you think it is, it is more complex than that. Like the rivers to the ocean, like the lightning strike, it is obscene and uncontained. Thank you very much. Cass and Jimmy, who wants to go next? Why don't you go ahead? You are the token male right. of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Since you're the token male, let's go third. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the piece I've chosen for today is it's called Jangan uh, or in in English, can you not be so quiet? Now it's an opinion piece by uh, Faisal Tehrani, uh, one of the nation's more prolific contemporary writers, in my opinion. And also not to mention one of the more controversial or uh, subversive ones too. I'll give you a little summary. So this piece was featured in the new site uh, Free Malaysia Today back in the end of July this year. And in it, Faisal recounts his experience interviewing Usman Awang, uh, one of Malaysia's national laureates of the past. So uh, he relates the advice and uh, the insight that he got from this one-on-one time sorry, one-on-one time with the laureate. Uh, he relates it to the socio-political climate of that day where society back then had their own sense of uh, conflict, uh, for either from, from blind spots in social inequality, you know, corruptive power, you know, the, these very same issues that you know, sound familiar, <laughs> as well as some other social ills. And, and uh, from the interview, he reflects the outspoken nature of the writer's back then to how it looks like today into the landscape of the wordsmiths, so to speak, that we have today uh, to varying effect. Uh, He also briefly relates some of his own experience of uh, fighting through the written word, uh, as well as the consequences that have come from uh, his efforts of doing so. But at the heart of it all, what he emphasizes from the interview with Mr. Osman is uh, the latter's parting words to him, which was to always write and keep writing, because to write is to fight. Or in his words, menulis itu melawan. And he goes on to relate this spirit of the fight to other poetic wor- uh, works of that time, which kind of all shared that mantra of calling out disparities and... Uh, uh, identifying injustice, but unfortunately, they kind of slipped unnoticed because of the limitations of the written medium at that time. You know, it, it wasn't as easy as uh, tweeting your 240 characters and blasting it out. So, <laughs> but uh, regardless, the spirit lives on, according to him, you know, as he has hope for writers of today who might still be finding their voice, you know, might still be green, you know, a little. Uh, incohesive, incoherent, but they can find the challenges of today, you know, the adversity as a chance to grow and potentially become the voices that the country needs tomorrow. So I'll go through why I chose it. Now, being a writer myself, though admittedly in a different capacity, you know, uh, I do it for companies marketing their products, as my day job, of course, uh, but I felt that this piece spoke to me personally. 
you know, though I can't say that I'm familiar with much of our national heritage of writing, you know, except for the stuff that we learned in BM Komsas, you know, or basically the stuff that we read in the uh, Buku Rujukan, <laughs> the Cliff Notes, or what have you. But I, I took heart to this call to speak up and write, and it's perfect, you know, because it fits in different contexts. You can write for the personal, you can write for the societal, and of course, you can write for the political sense. And of, and in that sense, there's a lot to write about, you know, but without getting too political about it, in view of what's going on now and the sort of sentiments that come with the news of the day, you know, there are things that we can't fully understand or sometimes are discouraged from saying, especially, you know, for the layperson such as myself. But through writing, I feel it kind of purges the inner demons that you might have, you know, that you might keep when it comes to processing all this deluge of information and developments. You know, in a way, it's a fight in itself, but it lets us make sense of what's going on here and now. And I feel it's best said in the excerpt of a preface from an anthology of poems that uh, Faisal brings up. And this anthology is called Dari Derita Bangsa, where it says that, uh, I'll kind of paraphrase here, but basically through the struggle to define ourselves as a civilized, esteemed nation, there might be loud voices that may sound like dissent, but at the heart of it is a feeling of pride for the nation, a sort of love for the country, and a yearning to see it progress on the right side of history. So in short, not all fights are bad. Some fights happen because we care, and to care for something is to define our feelings for it, to acknowledge and materialize it in a way that can help others understand and help them empathize, or at least help them decide, make decisions for themselves. And that is why it resonated with me as a writer. I tried my very best to read this piece of yours. <laughs> I would say that I, I really struggled through it. Um, yes. I think it's been a really long time reading a Malay piece. <laughs> and I'm, quite, I'm really ashamed of myself, honestly. Um, I, I would say, this is just a personal opinion, that you know when someone writes in Malay, and they, they can really write beautifully. It's how our Malay words are strung together. It can mm. be really romantic. Yeah. It can hit you, <laughs> hit you in a way that English can never. It just, um, it with one word can can say a million things. Yeah. Um, but I don't know whether it's only you know only people who are, well obviously only people who understand the language will know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it just it's too bad. And do you agree with me that there's just not enough Malay writers out there, and there should be, or do you think that? it's sooner or later will become a lost language. Well, from my own point of view, I can only agree in the sense that I myself haven't really been exposed to much, you know, uh, uh, writing in Bahasa, Bahasa Malaysia, you know. So I only have like a limited exposure, like kind of like a, a select few of sources I that I can get it from. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I mean, like just to, just to kind of... Uh, Asah balik, you know, just to kind of rinse and get my BM back on track. But definitely, it, it, I guess it goes to it goes to show just how I guess unexposed the potential for the language is. I mean, I'm I'm ashamed to admit myself that like I didn't take, uh, I didn't pay much attention, <laughs> you know, when learning it back in school, you know. But uh, one way or another, somehow find myself back to it. Um, especially in kind of just, you know, like scribbling around, uh, writing out my own thoughts. But I think to that end, like as you see in the, the uh, we read in the piece as well, that there are these people, like a generation of uh, new writers or people exploring the language, you know, on in their own time, in their own way. And yes, speaking their mind with it, using it to express themselves, uh, that although might be fresh and not quite established, but with the persistent practice and uh, persistent kind of 
will to speak out and use it will help it, of course, uh, live on through the years. I don't think it's going anywhere. I mean, it's a language. I, I do agree, though. I do feel so ashamed. And I do, I, as somebody who, obviously, Bahasa wasn't, like, one of my, my primary languages growing up, I, I do actually still wish I had felt that same kind of appreciation that I do now in school. I actually read this article just now when um, when you linked it, I found it, and I do want to share one of the parts that I also really liked, and I did translate it to English. One part was, I should say in English, the other was I kept in Bahasa because it felt more poignant in Bahasa. And I'm so grateful that I do have enough of that uh, proficiency to be able to read it and understand it. It was, like you said, don't stop writing, don't be quiet, writing is fighting, keep writing and keep fighting, which was, I think, that sort of thing that was the, the gist of what you mentioned. But I also liked that one of the sections that he pulled out of the book was because mm. the book cover yeah. was in black and white. And he said, Buku itu hitam, derita harus hitam, lawan juga harus hitam. So I think that sort of, if you understand that, right, if you you're, if you do get that, that context of, of what you meant just now, I think that uh, sort of really, really encapsulates that gray area that you sit in as a Malaysian citizen, as somebody who is colonized, westernized, but also still has such a great strength yeah. of nationalism in us. Like, we don't care about our country until suddenly some <laughs> Singapore says that they've got nasi lemak, like they're the founders of nasi lemak, and suddenly we're like, oh my God, you spit in our face kind of thing. I think he, he was uh, referring to the, the anthology of poems, which um, I think he's recounting what uh, what stuck in his mind about it was just the the black outer appearance of the book and relating it. I mean, of course. I thought it was like this book is hard and suffering oh, is hard. Oh, and yeah. Then and what's the other last? Why do I keep forgetting the last one? Lawa and fighting, fight. Yeah, yeah. so there fighting is, is also hard. So like the book yes. cover represents that suffering is hard, mm. and fighting is hard, and fighting is writing. So writing is hard. <laughs> writing is. <laughs> Am I hard. reading yeah. too much into it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. But writing is hard. I mean, like especially okay, yeah. The, yeah, depending on where you want to go with it. But you know, when it can have real world implications, yeah. it can have as much power. Dude, you gotta, I mean like, I struggle writing emails, you know, <laughs> do I say a lot or do I say a little, do I use emails yeah. or do I use paragraphs, <laughs> it's like, do I say best, oh, do I say correct. thank you, do I say, you know, sincerely? Tying back to this hitam thing, to me, in my opinion, um, as somebody who obviously tidak say bahasa Melayu, um, but as a writer, I kind of put my own meaning into it. So when he said buku itu hitam, derita itu hitam, I just thought that black in the t- way where like, you know, there's black and white and there's grey. And we know that war is bad. We know that suffering is bad. Um, and I think when he mentioned that buku itu hitam, I think there was a fair bit of controversy in the book when it first came out was because of the political outcry against the government at the time. So in that perspective towards the people who were against the book, the book was blacklisted, banned. That, that book is out of the picture. So I think that's what I think what he meant when lawan itu juga hitam means your fighting also has to be there. Your fighting has to be in that darkness. Uh, like Batman, because sometimes vigilante justice works, and and sometimes you must do what you what you must to be able to keep your voice heard. So that was what I took from it as as a as a journalist, as somebody who was speaking to somebody who had been through that political um, instability in our country. Alana, what what are your thoughts? I think the biggest takeaway for me how the written word can be a catalyst for change. That is why it's so crucial for us to be able to hone in on this this skill of writing for more people, for it to be accessible to others who have something important to say. And I'm not talking about, you know, lurkers on Reddit or <laughs> stuff like that. In a sense, like, that, that's why I, I believe it's so critical for everyone to be able to hone in on this craft. The question of freedom of speech is you know still very much up in the air anything we say or anything we draw even or write can be seen as seditious menulis itu 
is indeed melawan. <laughs> the pen is mightier than the sword. Yeah. Right. Thank you very much. Knowledge um, is power. Which brings us to our final pro round. <laughs> Lovely Miss Cassandra Lee. Take the floor. Okay, so I did choose a short story. It was a fairly short story. I think in total it was a 5,000 word short story. Uh, it is a short story written by the American author and poet called Raymond Carver. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, but he is quite well known as an American literature writer. This story is, is supposedly known to be one of his best short works, and it's called A Simple Good Thing. So as a trigger warning, this does talk about child death. Um, it's a pretty heavy-handed piece, but the summary of it is this is about the Wise family whose son Scotty is struck by a car on the day of his birthday, and he's only eight years old, and his mother has a cake made to order at a bakery, and on the day that he is struck by the car, he falls into what the doctor refuses to call a coma and he stays asleep for several days. Uh, Scotty unfortunately does end up passing away and during this length of time you get the perspective of the mother Anne and her husband John I believe as they go through the process of sitting at his bedside praying to keep him awake, going home changing clothes and when this happens the phone at home keeps ringing and they pick up the phone the father doesn't know who it is and he keep the person keeps calling and says the cake is ready um and the father says uh he says i don't know what you're talking about is this about scotty and the voice on the phone says yes it's about scotty he's he's right here he's ready so they think that it's something to do with um the well-being of their son they go to the hospital it's perfectly fine they think it's somebody who's prank calling them in some cruel and unusual thing when the mother goes home, she realizes when she picks up the phone call that this is the baker. And the day that she realizes that the baker's been calling them is the day that Scotty, unfortunately, is passes away. They just seen him take his last breath. They go home, and this man is calling them incessantly. So in that state of grief, they drive over to the mall, and the mom is obviously besides herself. She goes into the store. It's like midnight and they threaten him this man who doesn't know what they're here for and she, he's like what what do you want what do you want from me and she's like i want you to talk i want you to talk about scotty i'm here for scotty and the guy's like, oh you want your cake your cake's right over there i'll give it to you for free so for him he has no idea what they're talking about until they tell him that their son is dead and it's such a strange story because I have been in a class I did discuss this in my university class with other students and some of them were quite upset with the way that this ended uh, quote unquote without a resolution but I, I do want to get your opinions about what you thought about the ending from my understanding or rather like I, I guess being a literature student has kind of informed me on how to be able to find the underlying message and um, dig deeper uh, through any through a piece of writing or a piece of literature so what i know uh, of this story is that it explores the themes of grief forgiveness and also just the power of understanding and human compassion we're supposed to bear the the reality of what this writer is trying to convey yeah i think it was an interesting way to end the story. I mean, it, it felt like a non-ending in a way. But like, come to think of it, it was like, it didn't quite end with a moment rather than a sentiment to take away from it. In that, you know, the these parents, they lose something very dear to them, but at the same time, in the end, kind of get back a little hope, maybe, in the way that compassion or that connection can still exist maybe not as dearly as what they lost with their kid but you know there's still a reason to hold on oh can i add on um also the beauty of these kinds of 
emotional pieces, I feel like it's so telling of the human condition. Like, it, in a way, writing as, you know, a communication device can be used in that way, where sometimes as, you know, when writing poetry, things come out of me that I wouldn't necessarily verbalize. Like, written words are much more straightforward yet complex in that way that it tells Hmm. yeah that's that's a good point i think the one thing that i did strike me while reading the piece was how disconnected i was with the piece and sort of similar to when you were going through a death like you can't really be present you're sort of in disbelief and then you just go through the day that's what a good writer can make you feel right Thank you for everyone. That was really good. I, I really appreciate that that you guys did um, get that whole concept, the, the grief and the humanity and stuff. I think a bit of context with Raymond Carver is that I think you would have noticed as well that his language isn't particularly flowery. It isn't particularly complex. It's very accessible to anyone who wants to read. He's, he's very straight to the point. Um, he does have that thing where it's either he creates very strangely disconnected pieces or it's so strangely resonant to people that when you read his short stories you kind of get these snippets of other people's lives and and you don't quite don't quite know what to do with them because these are literally just these stories out of other people's lives and and sometimes you don't have a lesson to take out of it but this was definitely something that i picked out that i reread recently uh because of the loss of my grandmother very recently i i say recent she passed away in 2019 but i mean it's still a very like raw thing for me and when i remember rereading this story i just remember the fact that it was the little things that got you through those moments because you are in such a state of shock and loss that you don't even know what to do with yourself. And it does take that small good thing to kind of get you through that moment. And I did like in particular in the story was this baker, this man who has no children, doesn't seem to be married, only knows how to bake and feed people. And you know that for us, I think in the culture of feeding people is kind of the best thing that you can do for anyone. And he also mentioned that he would rather be a baker than a florist because he'd rather be feeding people. And I think that also does tie into the fact that, you know, who gets flowers the most? Funerals. I think Raymond Carver's writing is something that has always been very interesting to me. Just as somebody who went to school for it, you know, who's had professors tell you different things. Some people like it when it's flowery. Some people like it when you go really intricate. Some people are like Ernest Hemingway. Give me a sentence that's five words long, uh, that even then that's too much. And I think that when it comes to writing, you know, everybody always comes to you and asks you what's the perfect way of writing can you proofread this can you edit this what am i doing right what am i doing wrong as someone who who has had that and who has edited and betaed and proofread things for people as i'm sure we got we all have as well you know whether it's for professional things or or not i i do hesitate to tell them what is right and wrong because i i want them to keep their own voice uh the most i'll do is i'll punctuation typos grammar whatever right it it brings into question is how much do you censor of of people right when you write because Ernest Hemingway writes the way that he did wrote the way that he did because he was a journalist at first and their thing was like short and sweet and that somehow translated to writing fiction as well but but in your opinions what is it about writing like do you censor yourself when you write and where does that line start and end in terms of what you censor? Interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I have to separate my career as a writer and my passion for writing because sometimes, you know, you have to sacrifice a lot more in the career side of things and somehow end up completely neglecting your creative side. Uh, so... You do lose a lot of yourself to professional writing, but I think I can see the benefit of being critiqued in that sense or your work um, being censored in that way. Personally, it has 
in my experience, helped me refine the way I write. Sometimes when I read through my old stuff, I kind of get that longing of like, oh my God, where did this person go? So evocative, so eloquent. And suddenly, you know, you read stuff nowadays that you do, you do edit yourself as you go along. I think self-censorship is something that happens as you grow older and you experience more of the world and you kind of understand how people might react to certain things. That's true. So then if you want a certain reaction, then you write or you express yourself in a certain way. Um, or if you expect that certain people might get offended, then you will write in a certain way because you don't want to offend them. Um, and I think that those two factors does play a part in how what we censor and what we don't because we want to shape a story that tells our story without, I guess, getting backlash. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think in that way, when you define censorship in the way that we censor things these days, um, sure, certainly, I mean, there's always a very delicate line of walk when it comes to offensive things these days. But I just mean in terms of writing, in the differences in the way that different authors write. You know, some people really like that really flowery, really thought-provoking way of writing, and some people don't like it and they prefer the dry, straight-to-the-point stuff. Would it have helped if Raymond Carver had included the baker's perspective? Would it have helped if it had other perspectives? This was just entirely Anne. This was mo some parts John. It was just the wisest, and even then he barely f came out of perspective. Like, when you censor yourself in terms of writing, that's what I, I kind of mean. Because when you're writing for yourself and you want to just hope that somebody relates to it, that's a little more freeing, I think. And then when you write for publication, there is a lot of censoring. There is a lot of care with the way that you write things. So question, do you think uh, the reason why the Wises are the star and then the Baker sort of like, I mean, he doesn't even have a name, is something to the effect of he wants to point out in, in moments of grief, you never know who will come in support you like you know don't discount strangers yeah, I think so. um, they could just be the source of your comfort even a little bit too much like into the, it that's a good guess don't judge a book by its cover kind of thing because yeah. Anne didn't like the baker at the beginning she he had a thick neck and he wasn't yeah. friendly and maybe and you know like the people who you think is um, going to be your enemy will be your friend winds up to yeah that friend yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good contrast Sorry, we just went into a huge tangent, yeah. <laughs> no, I think like the kind of blind spot in the perspective of, you know, where the story is from is part of the narrative itself, where you know, in that situation, especially you're distraught, you don't know, um, top from bottom, you know, your whole world is shattering, but out of all that chaos, out of the blue, this person opens up to you and is much more than you first expect. I like the story because like for some reason I imagined the baker to be the baker from the Paddington movie. Was it Aww. Brendan Gleeson? Oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> Brendan Gleeson. <laughs> such such a sweet ideal. Yeah, I was like, why are you mad at him? He's just doing his job. You know? Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't know. I mean <laughs> But that's the thing I guess, right, is that uh, that that can also be twisted around being like Oh, you don't know yeah. what battles people are going through, so treat them yeah. as you would treat yourself. That's another thing to go into on another day. But like, um, I think I also like the fact that Anne does notice that there is another family in the hospital who are in the yeah. midst of losing their child, and and purely just for the fact that he was there, you know. And I think that kind of s cements this idea that these unexpected things happen to to the, the person you least expect to. Um, and it's just like the, the chaos, the endless chaos and cycle of the universe. And it's sad to think about. Yeah, but there is so, so much beauty in the little things, right? I, that's the main takeaway for me. Yeah, just yeah. the moments like where you think is meaningless. Exactly. But and it, that's something that everyone meaningful. needs to feel right now, which is finding the joy in the little, little things, especially during in these circumstances. Yeah. That's all we have, really. And we wouldn't be able to access, you know, this whole world of emotions and feelings and like endings and beginnings of different things if it weren't for literacy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you to all the writers who uh, volunteered <laughs> volunteered over close to comments. Force them in braggers. Drive you on the show. Uh, Global Literacy <laughs> Day, 8th of September. Do your part. Read a book. Uh, recommend a book. Um, we are pro reading in Seek to Speak. It's really important to advance your cause, um, express yourself, and remember that. Uh, people who don't read has no advantage over people who can't read. So if you can read, it is a luxury, it is a privilege. Please, please do. Um, last words from our writers. Uh, Cassandra. I say yes, don't let anyone stop you from reading. I am dyslexic what? and I only realized that very late in life. That never stopped me. And I think, yeah, so fun fact, I am dyslexic and I have always been. Um, but you will find your niche, you will find your passion. I say don't stop where people tell you you should yeah. forget about the reference book forget about yeah. history books read Fifty Shades read Twilight mm-hmm. just read whatever that makes you feel good just keep reading yeah. uh, keep expanding your vocabulary Alana? Girls and boys ladies and gentlemen everyone in between if you're hearing this please don't stop reading and writing because you'll be able to learn so much more and gain so many more advantages that you didn't think were possible. I myself was not very engaged during my school years in reading. I found it to be such a chore, which I regret. I wish I had developed a passion for reading and uh, writing much earlier. And, you know, who knows what works I could have produced. But here we are today, and the learning doesn't stop. So don't stop learning. If I could go back in time and say something or tell something to my 10-year-old self, for instance. I would tell myself to read. Read as much as you can. It doesn't have to be right. You can words in, you can words out. <laughs> you know? <laughs> See, like, it doesn't have to be perfect as long as it you know, can connect. <laughs> Waiting for your own will of discovery and expression most of all, you know, because you can't go through life being quiet. Alright, thank you very much everyone. Uh, that's it from us today. Thank you. Thank you, Mas. Thanks everyone.